Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Saturday, February 3rd, Sunday, February 4th, 2024. Uh, we have a few anniversaries. On February 3rd, 1509, this is the anniversary of the Battle of Dew, which took place in uh, India, in Gujarat, actually. It was a uh, battle between a Portuguese fleet and a combined Mamluk-Gujarati fleet, uh, who were supported, uh, of all things, by Venice, uh, the uh, Venetians and the Mamluks, who ruled, still ruled and would for a few more years, uh, Egypt and Syria, had a vested interest in preventing Portugal from establishing a foothold in India and exploiting the around Africa trade route uh, to direct spice trade. The spice trade, uh, the Mamluks and the Venetians got very wealthy off of the spice trade that went through the Red Sea, through Egypt, and then through the Eastern Mediterranean. So they didn't want to see that change. And so the Venetians helped the Mamluks, who then in turn helped the Gujaratis try to resist the arrival of the Portuguese. They failed, obviously. Uh, we know how the story turns out. Uh, the Portuguese won this battle uh, fairly easily uh, and did establish a foothold in India that uh, they would only wind up relinquishing to uh, the English. Uh, so, And that all worked out great for everybody. So it's a, it's a happy ending, of course. Uh, on February 3rd, 1966, the unmanned Soviet spacecraft Luna 9 became the first man-made object to make a soft, recoverable landing on the moon. The craft then sent back a series of photographs of the lunar surface before losing contact on February 6th. On February 4th, 1789, yes, George Washington was elected the first president of the United States. Uh, John Adams finished second with 34 votes and thereby became vice president. New York, North Carolina, and Rhode Island did not participate, the latter two, because they still hadn't ratified the Constitution, and New York because its legislature failed to choose its slate of electors in time for the vote. And on February 4th, 1861, a little bit uh, less auspicious U.S. anniversary, representatives of seven U.S. states, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, and South Carolina, met in Montgomery, Alabama to, you guessed it, drop a preliminary constitution for a new secessionist nation. Texas would soon join once the results of its February 1st referendum were tabulated. Uh, the Montgomery Convention, as the meeting is sometimes known, formed the basis of the future Confederate States of America. On to the news in the Middle East. We start with uh, Iran today, with a couple of days' distance from the event. Uh, we, we now have more detail regarding Friday's substantial U.S. assault on Iranian-linked targets in Iraq and Syria. U.S. Central Command said then that its operations struck over 85 sites, mostly connected with the militia groups. It's blaming for last weekend's drone strike that killed at least three U.S. soldiers, or killed three U.S. soldiers, rather, in Jordan. The airstrikes killed at least 45 people, 29 in Syria and 16 in Iraq. There is some discrepancy as to whether any civilians were among the dead. According to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, all 29 killed in Syria were guarding the sites that were hit, which presumably means they would not be classified as civilian. Uh, in Iraq, authorities initially claimed that an unspecified number of these 16 people who were killed were civilians. However, the Popular Mobilization Forces Umbrella Group later seemed to indicate that all all 16 were militia personnel. Iraqi officials are maintaining that two civilians were killed, possibly in addition to 16 militia fighters, uh, which would put the death toll in Iraq at 18.
U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told NBC News on Sunday that the Biden administration is planning, quote, to take additional strikes and additional action, end quote, against Iranian interests in retaliation for the Jordanian drone strike. He refused to say whether those strikes might include targets inside Iran itself, but my inclination is that if the administration were going to do that, it would have done it on Friday. Uh, This initial retaliation seems to have been calibrated to avoid the kind of escalation that a direct attack on Iran would trigger, including the administration's decision to telegraph its plans days ahead of time to give the Iranian government time to relocate senior personnel. There's always the chance that the Iranians or one of their affiliated militias might escalate things in response, but we haven't seen anything like that yet. Somewhat lost in all the Iran militia U.S. morass is the fact that these strikes took place in the territories of two sovereign nations whose governments, as it happens, aren't terribly thrilled about the U.S. military running roughshod within their borders. The Syrian government called on Saturday for an end to the U.S., quote, occupation of Syrian territory, end quote, while the Iraqi government, ostensibly a U.S. partner, lodged an official complaint with the U.S. charge d'affaires in Baghdad. Uh, The Russian government demanded a United Nations Security Council meeting. To discuss the incident. In Israel-Palestine, Hamas is reportedly continuing to weigh the latest ceasefire proposal, and I think at this point it's fair to say its leaders aren't embracing it enthusiastically. Uh, they're presumably angling to neg- renegotiate some of its details, though it's still unclear what they want, and it's possible they haven't even reached an internal consensus yet. Uh, While Hamas leaders talk it out, the Israeli military, or IDF, is expanding its Gaza operations into Rafah in southern Gaza and Deir al-Balah, which is located in central Gaza and has escaped the worst of the violence thus far. Both of these areas are home to Gazans displaced by IDF operations in Gaza City and Khan Yunus. Regarding the ceasefire deliberations, one detail that is known is that Hamas is demanding the release of Marwan Barghouti in any prisoner exchange. Uh, this is according to the AP. Barghouti is a major figure in the Palestinian Authority's Fatah party, who was convicted of murder in 2002 for his role in the second, second Intifada. Uh, his imprisonment has insulated him from growing dissatisfaction with the Palestinian Authority and its institutional rot and gives him a fair amount of broad-based credibility as a Palestinian leader, except for the pesky fact that he's in an Israeli prison. Hamas leaders may feel that they could point to Barghouti's release as proof of their own legitimacy and of the efficacy of the October 7th attacks, which probably don't look terribly efficacious to most Gazans right now. Uh, The Israeli government is unlikely to release him. Elsewhere, the Biden administration is reportedly sending Secretary of State Antony Blinken back to the Middle East this week to perform diplomacy without actually accomplishing anything. This is sort of his idiom now. Uh, And the Canadian government has decided to piggyback on the Biden administration's precedent to sanction a handful of violent Israeli settlers, though Canadian officials have promised to balance things out with new sanctions against Hamas as well. It remains to be seen whether the U.S. decision to blacklist all of four individual settlers will have any ramifications for the wider settlement enterprise. As we've seen in other cases, Iran, North Korea, Venezuela, etc., U.S. sanctions can have crippling secondary effects in that the mere threat can be enough to scare off businesses and especially banks. In this case, I have my doubts that we'll see similar impacts, but it is possible. In Yemen, the U.S. and U.K. militaries undertook another major round of airstrikes against Houthi targets in northern Yemen on Saturday, this time targeting 36 sites. 
This is, by my count, the third major wave of attacks over the Houthis' threats to Red Sea shipping to date, which doesn't include smaller U.S. strikes in between and as it happens on Sunday, apparently. Uh, Presumably, the timing had something to do with the wider U.S. response to that Jordanian drone strike that we mentioned earlier. Uh, Certainly, the two are related in terms of the mounting chaos in the Middle East and the unsustainability of the Biden administration's current approach. On to Asia and Pakistan. Former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan was handed another prison sentence on Saturday, his fourth in less than a week, uh, or rather third, sorry, third in less than a week. That's a mistype. I will correct that right now. Uh, It's the advantage of reading these things. I can do editing while I'm doing it. Uh, Anyway, uh, that's a little little bit of how the sausage is made. Anyway, uh, this time around, a court found that Khan and his wife are guilty of violating Islamic marriage law because they did not observe the mandatory waiting period following her divorce before they wed in January 2018. It sentenced them to seven years in prison each, which means Khan has been sentenced to 21 years total in recent days. Uh, There are still dozens of cases pending against him and what he and his supporters insist is a politically driven effort. In the Maldives, the Maldivian foreign ministry announced on Saturday that the Indian government has agreed to withdraw the 80 or so soldiers it has stationed in the Maldives by May in two waves. Maldivian President Mohamed Muizu campaigned for last year's election on a pledge to remove India's military presence, and he'd previously demanded the troops ouster by the middle of March. The plan now is for the first wave to take place on March 10th, partially meeting that deadline. Uh, The Indian soldiers will be replaced with civilians. And in the Philippines, National Security Advisor Eduardo Ano threatened on Sunday to use force to prevent any secession attempts. Uh, What would prompt him to make such an odd statement, you ask? Well, apparently former Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte is now threatening to take the island of Mindanao independent amid what has become a public feud with current President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. After uniting with Duterte through the 2022 election, Marcos broke with him over foreign affairs, among other things, Marcos favoring the U.S. Uh, Duterte having favored China. Their falling out has continued over Marcos's proposal to amend the Philippine Constitution. Duterte accuses him of trying to get rid of term limits so that he can remain president, I guess, indefinitely. Uh, and the two spent part of this past week accusing one another of being on drugs. So at least they're keeping it classy. Uh, On to Africa in Senegal. Senegalese politics have been thrown into turmoil after President Macky Sall announced on Saturday that he's postponing the country's February 25th presidential election. Sall cited irregularities in the vetting of candidates, claiming that several of the 20 people running have been found to have dual citizenship, rather, making them ineligible to run by law. Two judges on Senegal's Constitutional Council, which approved the candidates, are now under investigation on corruption charges that opposition figures and the country's judicial association say are bogus. There's some danger here that Saul is trying to carry out a self-coup. He only finally announced last year amid heavy protests that he would not seek an unconstitutional third term in this election. And under the circumstances, it's more than fair to wonder if he's now having second thoughts and or uh, became, has become worried uh, that his hand-picked successor, Prime Minister Amadou Ba, uh, was perhaps cruising toward defeat. Uh, He hasn't yet announced a new date for elections, but Reuters reports that the Senegalese parliament is considering a bill that would reschedule it for August 25th, and hey, would you look at that, extend Saul's term through the new election date. And who knows 
what might happen by then. Uh, there's already been a significant public outcry in Senegal where protesters hit the streets of Dakar after Saul's announcement and were met with police wielding tear gas. Opposition candidates in the now-postponed vote have called on their supporters to rally in the capital. Internationally, the French and U.S. governments, along with the economic community of West African states and the European Union, have all expressed concern over Saul's announcement. In Nigeria, unspecified gunmen killed four police officers in northeastern Nigeria's Borno state late Saturday night. Presumably the attackers were jihadists, but there's apparently no confirmation as to their identities. Curiously, Nigerian authorities are denying claims of a jihadist attack on a police headquarters in the regional capital, Maiduguri, on Saturday. Uh, the sh- this shooting, uh, the, the one that killed the four police officers, took place in an area just north of that city. In South Sudan, at least 37 people have reportedly been killed this weekend in another outbreak of intercommunal violence in the disputed Abye region along the Sudanese-South Sudanese border. Uh, armed youth, this is the description from uh, the AP, from South Sudan's Warop state, followers of a spiritual leader named Guy Machiak, uh, reportedly entered Abye and commenced to killing residents, at least 19 on Saturday and another 18 on Sunday. They also apparently stole some 1,000 head of cattle. Authorities are blaming Machek for inciting the violence, which involves competing factions of the Dinka community, though he denies any involvement. And in Namibia, President Jaje Geingob died on Sunday while under treatment for cancer. He was 82 and clearly ill, so his death doesn't exactly come out of the blue. Uh, he was also term-limited uh, ahead of November's election, so any political disruption from his death should be relatively contained. Former Vice President Nangolo Mbumba is now serving as acting president and apparently does not intend to run in said election. On to Europe. In Russia, Ukrainian drone strikes sparked a fire in the large Russian oil refinery complex at Volgograd on Saturday. It's unclear whether any significant damage was done to the facility, but the strike itself reinforces a recent trend toward deeper Ukrainian attacks on Russian soil. Uh, The Ukrainians appear to have developed a longer-range drone capability, though it's also possible that they're conducting short-range drone strikes from within Russia. Uh, nevertheless, I'm, I'm going with the longer-range drone thing. It seems uh, to make more sense. Uh, on to Ukraine, where Ukrainian shelling reportedly killed at least 28 people in a bakery in the Russian-occupied city of Lysyshansk in Ukraine's Luhansk Oblast on Saturday. Russian authorities say the Ukrainians attacked the city with a U.S.-made HIMARS rocket launcher. There's been no comment from Ukrainian officials. Uh, In Sweden, Swedish authorities say they are investigating the discovery of what they're calling a dangerous object on the grounds of the Israeli embassy as a possible attempted terrorist attack. The object, which unconfirmed reports are calling a grenade, was found near the embassy's fence on Wednesday. It was destroyed without further incident, and the embassy staff remained in place. In Greece... An explosive device did go off outside the Greek labor ministry office in Athens on Saturday, though it caused no casualties. Police were able to secure the area after a newspaper received a call alerting them to the device. The caller attributed the explosive to what Reuters is calling, quote, a previously unknown guerrilla group, end quote. 
On to the Americas. In Ecuador, the Russian government on Saturday moved to ban some Ecuadorian banana imports, ostensibly for public health reasons, uh, but more likely over a growing geopolitical spat. The Ecuadorian government has irked Moscow by agreeing last month to transfer some of its older Soviet-slash-Russian military hardware to the United States. In return, it will receive some $200 million worth of new U.S. hardware, and the material it sends to the U.S. will be transferred on to, yes, Ukraine. Uh, the banana ban, uh, sorry, uh, is no small thing. Ecuador sells about $700 million per year in bananas to Russia. Saturday's move doesn't affect that entire amount, but it certainly sends a signal. In El Salvador, to what I assume is nobody's surprise, incumbent Nayib Bukele has declared himself the winner of Sunday's Salvadoran presidential election. Uh, polling showed that this election was going to be no contest. Bukele also indicated that his New Ideas party was on track to win at least 58 seats in El Salvador's Legislative Assembly. Bukele reduced the legislature from 84 to 60 seats last year, with the reduction taking effect in the new session. And finally, I wrapped up uh, in the United States with a piece from uh, John Schwartz at The Intercept looking back uh, to uh, a case in the 1980s, an international court of justice case in the 1980s, uh, to understand the Biden administration's response to last month's ruling on Gaza, which is going to be to ignore it. Uh, I don't uh, – without reading the the excerpt, uh, I'll just kind of say it's a, it's a very interesting piece. Uh, the ICJ ruled in uh, the mid-1980s that the United States had meddled so much uh, in Nicaraguan affairs uh, that it really needed to knock it off. Uh, this is, you know, after the Reagan administration had been – uh, funding Contra death squads and, uh, you know, all manner of uh, attempts to uh, undermine the Sandinista government. Uh, the ICJ uh, issued provisional rulings ordering the U.S. to stop doing things like mining Nicaraguan ports uh, and issued a final ruling actually in 1986, finding that the U.S. was uh, had breached international law in a number of ways uh, in its uh, efforts to undermine the Nicaraguan government. The U.S. government just ignored all of it. Uh, which it can do because there's no enforcement mechanism. Uh, the ICJ, to enforce any of its rulings, has to go through the UN Security Council, but the United States has a veto on the UN Security Council, so uh, ipso facto, there's nothing uh, that can be done to the United States uh, by the International Criminal Court of Justice. Uh, that's basically the story. It's really interesting, though. You, you should uh, click through and read the details, uh, It, uh, but it does explain what's happening here with the ICJ ruling against Israel. It's simply not going to take effect because the United States will make sure uh, that there are no repercussions from it. Uh, on that note, that's all for us tonight. Thanks to all of you for reading and or listening to the newsletter, and especially to those of you who are foreign exchanges subscribers making this newsletter possible. Until next time, take care, and I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye.